All right. Welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. My name is Don DiMuccio, and I lost my virginity at a Weird Al concert. <laughs> Thank you. Later on, we're going to talk to a major player in the music industry who specializes in managing and preserving the artistic brand and integrity of some of rock's long-departed icons like Jim Morrison and The Doors, Janis Joplin, Otis Redding, Muddy Waters, and scores more. Founder of Jampol Artist Management, Jeff Jampol. But first... Let me introduce our co-host for the day. I consider her the executive producer of the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. She guided me through the process of developing the show's concept since it was first conceived way back on a snowy weekend in December. After Are I, we pregnant? And uh, I don't know. Uh, well, I, Are we pregnant? After I'd been on a three-day Swiss Miss Bender. And I'm not talking sugar-free either. I was hitting the hot stuff. Oh, sugar. She started her career in L.A. as a casting assistant working on films like Fast and Furious. TV shows like Sex in the City and Malcolm in the Middle. Never watched it. She wrote copy from Madonna's label Maverick Records, as well as Warner Brothers Records, working with Green Day and Faith Hill. And now we've got her. Ladies and gentlemen, number three on my speed dial, the always effervescent Susie Gears. Uh Uh, Where's the cue for the huge applause? I'm kind of (laughs) bummed. The kids love you. Thank you. Yes, yes. Oh, thank you, everybody. Effervescent. Effervescent. I have that my thesaurus with me today. Giving off bubbles. Fizzy. That is me. That is me. Very fizzy. Giving off bubbles. Gassy? No, that's not right. <laughs> Gassy, maybe. Yes, After yes. I eat sugar-free gummy bears, perhaps. So how the but hell are you, Susie? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me. And uh, Jeff is the best. He's just such a good human. So I am so glad that you connected because what a story and a fantastic mentor that the music industry needs. And he is just wonderful. And you got to meet him when you were working in L.A.? I did. I did. uh, Many moons ago. And... um, our company, uh, the company I was working for, Noise Pollution Music Marketing, we worked with him, and I cannot remember for what project, but um, we did, and kind of everybody, especially in music, it's a scene. You're going to the, a lot of the same shows, a lot of the same places, so we know a lot of the same people, and... Um, Oh, I, you know, was able to, you know, become friendly with Jeff. He's just a great mentor. And um, I see what a beacon for the music industry. He is just a wealth of knowledge. And like I said, he's a truly excellent human being. So um, the music industry should be very happy to have him. So what are you making tea? (laughs) <laughs> what like oh like gossip tea are you trying no to be no no like... i literally heard water running and pots and pans oh, that sounds like a personal problem I, i'm I, checking all around me I but um <laughs> i thought you were going all all instagram like glam on me by saying do you have tea like are you spilling the tea i, I don't like even know God. what instagram is what's that some sort of uh animal? virus yeah, it really yeah, is yeah. Now, when you were out but, in L.A. and you were working mm-hmm. with bands, what, what what exactly, like, walk me through an average day of what you would do. Oh, there was never an average day, my friend. No, but it, it truly varied. For noise pollution, we were one of the first companies that did the old school grassroots marketing campaigns. And so I would be in charge of certain um, markets or cities in the country and let's say Corn was on tour and a band called Linkin Park wanted to get notoriety. 
well, they, the, their label, who is Warner Brothers, contacted us. So what we would do is target corn shows and anything that was like Lincoln Park. We would inundate them with, you know, stickers, swag, oh, yeah. um, to promote the band. And a great story is I remember being down at the Whiskey A Go-Go on Sunset. And I remember getting a cassette single from Lincoln Park, a cassette single. And to see the rise and not to use one of, you know, to this is kind of cheesy, but I can't help it. One of their albums names is Meteora. I mean, they had a meteoric rise. Mm. I mean, and if you're not a rock fan, I get it. But that hybrid theory, and it's one of the shortest albums out there in, in length. It is a classic to this day. It truly is amazing. And we were on that ride and we were given, you know, the the platinum record. And it, it was it was so celebratory to be part of that. So uh, that is kind of what we did. We did film. Um, so every day truly was different. You know, you're you're hustling reps, you're going to shows, you're enjoying the rock star life, not being a rock star. I remember, <laughs> I remember once you mentioned the term street team. Yes, Explain yes. Explain that concept. Sure. So again, our grassroots, it was, it's called a, it's called street team marketing. And so record labels, one that was really big with it was Roadrunner Records. And so you build a street team. It's literally getting as many friends and promoting that band to take it to the streets, to promote that band to the streets. And so um, Roadrunner was so amazing with that concept. Um, and they were a struggling label. They had Slipknot. Slipknot was huge. But then they acquired, they signed uh, Nickelback. Oh, excuse me. I feel so ill. They And Nickelback was really what saved that label. But Slipknot really did amazing things. But this the commercial success of Crappleback was amazing. But um, that was really the first level, first label, excuse me, to embrace street marketing. Because metal fans are so loyal. I'm a metal fan. We are very loyal. We kind of will go to the depths of anywhere promoting our favorite bands. Mm-hmm. So it's it's literally a gaggle of your friends going to the same kind of things that you like and promoting whatever band you are. So it's like we were doing Enya, promoting Enya. So you wouldn't send, you know, your Enya materials to a Lincoln Park show. Right. So um so it was fun it, to really watch, to get kids involved. And it was a lot of youth. And I hate saying that term, being 43. But, you know, Still a music. Oh, bless you, my child. You're 100, but that's all right. Um, when you're a kid, music and I'm lucky as an adult, it is still my way of life. But especially as you're a kid, you want to get closer to your artists and your bands. And you meet fellow people like that. And that's really what street teams were about. And um, it was really fun. It was really a fun time. And I remember we even did a promotion with, do you remember the Toyota Matrix? Oh, yeah. Sure. Oh, my gosh. So we got hired by Toyota. And we, guess what? (laughs) Their promotional product was these 
tins of mints with the car on it. Oh my gosh. The expense of shipping them out, how heavy they were, the bane of my existence. Every time, very sporadically, I will see a Toyota Matrix, but all I think of are those darn mints that we had in those mint <laughs> tins. And now who would you so ship heavy. them to? The, I mean, all the kids out... Whoever I had, whatever city I had, so I, I think I had, I did have like a St. Louis. So you'd send a case to the to the kid that signed up for that street team. No, no offense to Toyota. I mean, not a lot of kids signed up to be part of. Let's promote the Toyota Matrix. Right. So you kind of be like, I know you like Green Day, but do you mind if we kind of tack this on? And they're like, of course. You do. We would pay them. Like this was a job. I think per show, it was like fifty dollars. Uh, you go at the end of the show and you hand them out to the people, the uh, concert goers leaving the show. Okay. And that's where, so that way they don't throw it out in the, inside the venue. You get them on the way out. And so we would send them to all of all of our street teamers throughout the fine United States. Ah. Yeah. Is it almost like, I'm showing my age here, but oh, back in the day, bands would mm-hmm. have fan clubs. Yes, totally. And it was, Absolutely. it was all correspondence. It was all, you know. Mm-hmm. It costs next to nothing to, you know, send out photos and mass produce, you know, newsletters Mm -hmm. and things like that. But Mm -hmm. I know when I got something from, you know, I I remember joining the Robert Plant fan club when I was 13. Oh, my gosh. And it it was just like all like materials printed on a dot matrix printer. I mean, very. Or some condoms and and, uh, (laughs) some (laughs) But it was just, you know. Yeah, I know. You felt so connected to the artist. Yes. And we we worked with wonderful record labels who, at that time, you could really put people on guest lists. So we were lucky enough that we could be like, we'll put you on the list for the show. Can, you know, after that, just go outside and hand stuff out. So it was such a nice, like, these kids would be able to go see their favorite bands for free. You know, well, and I should uh, industry inside as uh, you know, for those who don't know, but I think a lot of your listeners are based in the industry. Mm-hmm. When somebody tells you you're going in for free or you're on a list, somebody is still paying for that. The oh, musicians sure. do still pay for that. Just because it's free to you, it is not free to them. So even though our kids deserved it, it was so nice to do that. But, um, it, it is. It's a wonderful connection. You know, I still talk to reps. I still have. I still. I love Facebook for just solely this purpose. I still stay connected to some. It's just. It's awesome. It's awesome. And I love bet it. they're still loyal to the bands that they were working with. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you're gonna go the extra mile for a band, especially that showed you a little bit of kindness. So it's, you know, it's it's a connect. Like you said, it's a connection. It is. It's a wonderful connection. Do you think on the local level, bands are utilizing things like you're talking about street teams and and no, and- no, no. I have. I I don't know. I I don't think. My issue with local music is I don't feel they they put a lot of effort into it. And I don't and I don't mean that I I want to not en- envelope everybody. I don't want to shortchange the hard work that does go into it. Um oh, I, I hope that didn't come out wrong. No, I know uh, what in terms I of do, the self-promotion I, and I just don't think, like, when I was in L.A., I, I saw, like, the struggle. Like, these guys that lived, breathed, um, spent all their money at, you know, fly- flyers were huge in L.A. And I know you hear the stories, about, but it's true. Every You leave a venue, everybody's handing out flyers, handing out flyers. Half of them, more than half, would end up on the ground. 
But it was the hustle. It was the drive. It was the hunger. Right. However, L.A. is like the MVPs of talent, especially a lot of music talent. So the head guy in, you know, little Massachusetts, all these great bands all go to LA and all of a sudden they're not the it band in LA. And then you work for it. Then you see, oh my gosh, you know, I'm not like the president of the student council here in LA. I need to hustle. So in, in a way, it's a kind of a great start over where you learn if you really want it, you're going to hustle because you can be awesome at home where you are number one. And that's why I think they don't work as hard, maybe. Because you're a, because big, you're a big fish in a small pond. That's it. That's that's exactly it. Right. But I'm not in a band and it's kind of like me critiquing a guitar player. Um, I don't know how to play and I give everybody kudos. Um, but it's just my experience. I am in a band and <laughs> one of the things that we've talked mm-hmm. about this a little bit, we don't leave the house unless we get paid. I mean, no, no. Of course, we do benefits and charities and stuff like that. But yep. I mean, generally, mm-hmm. you know, if I hire a plumber, I don't expect mm-hmm. him to do it and then say, you're not going to do it for free. Don't you love right. the art of plumbing? You know? No, right. it's a career. You've got to pay for his skills and his tools and everything else. Mm-hmm. It should be the mm-hmm. same for musicians. Absolutely. You've told me that out in L.A., it's still mm-hmm. prevalent that they play to play, play, baby. Pay to play. Pay to play. Again, this could be different, and as but I doubt it. I mean, who doesn't want to play the Whiskey Go-Go? And... The whiskey is amazing, but they still, they also have to pay their bills too, you know, and I've been to the whiskey every single night of the week. Not every night of the week is packed to the gills and that real estate is prime real estate. It's expensive and why not? I mean, I know it's hard for a band, but they want you to bring in people. It's a pay your dues kind of thing. And to be able to say you played the whiskey a go-go is pretty awesome. That's you know? a rare and exception, so, though. I mean, how many? It is, well, out in LA, it's not. And again, Roxy. it could change. I know the Maglieri family. Mike Maglieri, who is running it now, is a wonderful. Oh, just adore him. Yep. He's the uh, grandson of the gentleman that started Mario Maglieri, and um, they can be choosy. Now, obviously, in a town like uh, you know Providence, probably doesn't have to say pay to play. Um, but it's, I think I want to say they had to sell at least 200, 200 tickets in order to play. Like you have to bring in 200 bodies. I'm pretty sure it was either 50 or 200, but 200 keeps sticking in my mind. Mm. Again, could be totally different, but in LA, Key Club, The Roxy, Troubadour, because you'd also be elbowing with Motorhead. You'd have the next day, you'd have these, you too. Sure. I mean, so it was like you are kind of elbowing in on onto saying that you played there. Yeah, that's so. a, that means it is L.A. after all. It is. And, you know, it is L.A. And I know there's a big divide. I, You know, whenever I'd say, oh, I live in L.A., I hate L.A. I love L.A. And it is, it starts a lot. This is going to sound so queer and i don't mean that in a disrespectful i love the gay community but it's a magical place if you are in music or if you are in film it is a magical place because your life can just you can see you can find yourself in places you never imagined growing up do you know what i mean and that's what i love about la um can it be superficial oh lord have mercy i mean the first thing out of somebody's mouth is what do you do 
Um, especially as a casting assistant. Oh my gosh. But some of my best friends are the ones I met in LA minus a couple, but my lifelong friends are from where I met in LA from LA. And, um, you can, it's like anything you make anything out of anywhere, but I think LA does get a bad rap. (laughs) Is it harder for a woman to break into the business? In, in terms of, you know, the business side, not entertainment, mm-hmm. not as the entertainer. But oh, it's as harder be- as the entertainer. Oh, geez. Oh, but that, that's a whole nother topic. Mm-hmm. But in terms of mm-hmm. being taken, you know, I don't want to say taken serious. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I like metal, as I said, and heavy metal is a male centric genre. Right. And so I spearheaded an online music magazine and I would target my favorite metal bands. My co-host was T-Bone, you know, this Travis Brown from Des Moines, Iowa. Woo-hoo. And so he was amazing. What a great teacher and mentor he was. He really showed me metal, the inside and out of it. But we would go, we would show up to interviews. And thank God I knew my shit because I had to prove it. They looked at T-Bone and they were like, yeah, man, you know. And then I would pipe in and they'd be like, oh, wow, she knows what she's talking about. And then I would keep talking and... It would take them, you know, the rapport, like you, I had to work 10 times harder and make sure I was prepared because I knew I wouldn't be taken seriously. I think they all thought I would say, if you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? I mean, oh, they shit. that was my next question for you. I, you know, I felt it. I felt it. Ash. Thanks. I guess. Um, but it was harder. It, it really was. And I'm not trying to, you know, sure. be like, oh, God, typical woman. Here she goes. But it really was. And you did have to prove yourself. But the funniest thing is the band that gave me the hardest time was an all-woman metal band. Really? Yes. Kitty out of Canada. They're yeah. awesome, super heavy, all-girl power. Woo! They were not cool. <laughs> they were not cool. I mean, everybody has a bad day. And I think we have to ease up on celebrities or anybody in the public persona a little bit. Everybody tries truly does have a bad day but lord have mercy they were just like stale bread so it's just funny what you think is going to be empowering and you're like "Mm, okay now i know but again anybody can have a bad day but who's the biggest and nicest celebrity quote-unquote you had the pleasure to interview Oh, well, I've been very lucky. Everybody truly has been wonderful. But Tom Morello, Rage Against the Machine, Street Sweeper Social Club, we just got along. And um, it was for Rock the Vote. I I write for Rock the Vote. And I was nervous. I don't get very starstruck per se, but I did then. And I was just like, it's Tom Morello. And um, he even was like, I'm so sorry I was late. And... You know, I'm like, really? And we could have kept going and going and going just because we kind of have the same sort of political views. And and it was I got to take pictures during his set. And I'll tell you, it's some of the best rock photos I've ever taken. That man posed in front of my camera and I will show you the pictures. It was just a great vibe. They were playing with Jane's Addiction. So you had like Dick Navarro running around and being nosy. And it was but he is just Oh, he's so intelligent. I mean, he went to Harvard. Um, very, very socially conscious. Um, Street Sweeper Social Club it was that band. Um, but he was just one of one of the best, really. Tommy Lee was awesome, too. Um, Motley Crue, 
Tommy Lee was goofy, like great, like fun, goofy. Tom Morello was fun, but it was like politically charged. You know, I don't want to say a little bit more intellectual, but yeah, a little more intellectual. Tommy Lee, like he grabbed my notes. It was like, you want me to answer that? Did it? I mean, we just had a ball. He was actually dating my tie, believe it or not, that's how you say her name, um, who is ma- who at one point was married to Prince. And there's a picture of Tommy Lee and I holding the dog that she had with Prince. So, little kind of insurious rock and roll community. <laughs> <laughs> Here on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, we not only spotlight the artists who create the music that changed our lives, but also the industry insiders who facilitate those artists in a hundred different ways. 
from artist development to recording engineers, and one particular management area that our guest today has parlayed into one of the most successful businesses on the globe. And here to tell you all about his company, whose tagline is, We Manage Legends. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Grammy Award-winning president of Jampol Artist Management, Jeff Jampol. Good morning, Jeff. Hey, Don. Thanks for having me. Ah, thanks for doing it. Well, tell us a little bit about what services Jampol Artist Management offers. We specialize in managing uh, large, uh, iconic musical artists, many of whom are deceased. It's not a requirement. It tends to be mostly that. But it's basically when an artist is inactive, meaning when they stop writing new music and or touring. That can happen through death. It can happen through retirement. It could happen through they just stop. And once that happens, it becomes a whole new business. Uh, You know, most managers come up in this business knowing and being really good if they're successful at, well, we'll say three and a half things, which is number one, touring, uh, because that's where the majority of a current artist's income from which it will derive. Right. Tour merch, kind of obvious, radio and or streaming uh, song promotion. Right. And then the point five is uh, branding and co-branding deals. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a level of expertise in the current management field for that kind of work. I think they're learning, but I think a lot of them are pretty new to it. But concerning the major three, which is touring, tour merch, and you know, song promotion, you know, once an artist is inactive or stops touring, guess which three things we don't do anymore. All right. Um, and so again, it becomes a whole new business, and it's a business of album releases, song releases, re-releases, uh, publishing. Uh, sync, you know, film and TV licensing, uh, commercial use, museum exhibits, book deals, retail apparel, which is a completely different business from tour merch. Sure. Uh, you know, tour merch is the souvenir business. Somebody's buying a memento of the evening they just experienced. The apparel business is when usually a 10 to 24 year old female will walk into a retail store to buy a garment to wear. Right. And that's a relatively new area. It's not something you would have seen, let's say, even 30 years ago. Yeah, I think it really started to pick up in the 80s, started in the 80s and started to become prevalent in the 90s and aughts. And now it's, it's it's a significant business. And it's in 64 territories around the world at three levels, what we call upstairs, mid tier, downstairs, or high end, mid tier, low, uh, low end, or mass, as they call it. Mm -hmm. So it's really almost like three dimensional chess. And then, of course, you have museum exhibits and you have books and you have uh, all kinds of other areas that most artists and most managers are not really experienced in. Yep. And, of course, all on a worldwide basis, and it's different from territory to territory. Right. You know, I read a quote of yours. You said, a lot of damage can be done in the name of commerce and applying business terms to art can often sully art's purity. And that's quite profound and quite true. Well, uh, I'll I'll give you the foundational premises which guide me and, by extension, guide my company. The first thing is we're dealing with art here, you know, and there's art and there's a message. And this is not a deodorant or a toothpaste. Right. Right. This is an artist. And successful artists, all of them have magic. They have alchemy, you know, and there's something that connected a 12-year-old to Jim Morrison in 1967 and 77 and 87 and 97. And as I tell my students, first week of class, if you think it's about the music, you're going to fail this class. Mm-hmm. Because if you think it's about the music, then by deductive logic and reasoning, you think the magic to James Dean is about his acting. That's a good point. He is an yeah. actor, and his acting may be really good, but that's not the magic. 
So the music is really an entry point to the magic. And I think it's one of the problems that current artists today are having, although hopefully we're coming into a different period. But we've become a singles culture all over again, and it's all about the song. And you have so few artists who have a unique character and identity uh, uh, you know, above and beyond the, the music. The prime example that comes to mind of someone who's done it well is Lady Gaga. Right. right. And, and if you become interested in that artist, and if you connect with that artist, then by natural extension, you're interested in everything Lady Gaga does, whether it be a book or a cooking show or mm-hmm. a Broadway appearance or sure. an album or a film. And as I used to tell current artists when I was managing current artists, I used to say, listen, dude, I, I don't manage songs. I manage artists. Be an artist. Have a point of view. You know, have an opinion. Sure. Stand for something. And that can be packaged right into their whole being. They become the brand. Well, exactly. They right. are. Right. And, and the music becomes an extension of that. And, right. you know, music is what we use as the fuel, but it's, it's not the car. Not, not to descend into metaphor hell here. Right. Um, <laughs> so we recognize that, that, that there's magic here that we have to protect and we have to promote. You know, it's, it's kind of a heavy yoke to wear. Sure. And I've told my staff members on many occasions, you know, it's like I'll poke my head in their office and say, listen, it's 11 a.m. And I'll bet you if you had espresso this morning, I'll bet you by 6 p.m. You could completely ruin and tear asunder what took Janis Joplin 27 years and death to build one day by Mm -hmm. 6 p.m. today. So have a careful day. But at the same time, you can't stand still. One of the analogies I always use for having a pop culture brand is. You know, it's like walking up a down escalator. And if you're standing still, you're not standing still. You're moving backward. So you have to have enough forward momentum to overcome the downward trend of the escalator and not move so fast that you trip all over yourself and you end up at the bottom anyway. One of the worst examples I can think of personally, I'm a big Beatles fan, and there was so much hoopla when Revolution appeared in a Nike ad. That's a really, really interesting example. So let's talk about that for a minute. I think the biggest factor of that, uh, you know, on its surface was this absolute, pardon the phrase, revolutionary change in the use of their music. I mean, we were just not used to seeing that or hearing that in a commercial. We were not used to seeing that or hearing that co opted. Um, and it blew our collective minds. And I think that was the majority of the shock. And and sometimes that's just the shock of the new, and we get past it and we become accustomed to it. I mean, even down to the mundane, like I know friends who don't want to get rid of their iPhone 8s because they like the home button, and they don't want to deal with a phone without a home button. It's just we get demo love, for lack of a better phrase. Once we get past that, you know, you look at the band, a band like the Beatles, who were always above the mundane. They were above, uh, or at least seemingly above, just sheer commerce. Although, if you look at their merchandising programs, I mean, wow. they had Beatle wigs. And if you look at the, the, the title of the song and what it stands for and what these guys are singing about, it's completely antithetical to that use. Right. And so, you know, for me, I don't have the luxury of calling McCartney and going, what do you think? 
one of the quicksand traps in my business, if you will, is you cannot say what an artist would think or an artist would do. You can only say what they thought and what they did. In the case of Jim Morrison, you know, famously, perhaps, the Doors have never done a commercial. In 1967, Light My Fire was the number one song in the world. And, you know, the Doors had always and still do operate under a governance of unanimity, meaning they all have to agree. Mm -hmm. And uh, General Motors came to the Doors and said, hey, we want to use Light My Fire to promote this new European car that Buick's doing called Opal. And uh, the guys tried to find Jim, and Jim was off in Europe somewhere. And they tried to contact him and reach him, and they couldn't. And so they had to make a decision on their own. And I, I believe the number was $50,000 for that song. And, and, and Robbie had written the song. Right. And so they made the decision in Jim's absence to, to go ahead and approve it. And they got the check, and they cashed it. And General Motors shot the, 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 the commercial. And I'm told it was actually aired two or three times. And when Jim got back from Europe, he lost his mind. Rightfully so. I don't think he ever fully trusted the band members after that. Mm. Uh, or I mean, they had a warm camaraderie and working relationship, but I think there was always a little bit of gray area in there after that. But he called the lawyers and the lawyers said, there's nothing we can do. We signed it a deal. We cashed the check. They made the commercial. Jim got so incensed, he actually personally called the, the CEO of General Motors and, who, and got him on the phone. And he said, look, if you keep airing that commercial, I'm going to buy 10 Opals and I'm going to smash one with a sledgehammer on stage at every concert we play. <laughs> and so they pulled the commercial. That's crazy. Conversely, if you look at Janis Joplin, you know, she was sitting around her apartment in San Francisco one night with a bunch of friends. It's probably 67, 68, and uh, she was drinking Southern Comfort, and one of them flippantly said to her, you know, you drink so much of that stuff, they should sponsor you. And she was like, you know what, you're right, I drink it on stage, and they should sponsor me. And she wrote a letter to Brown and Foreman, who was the, the spirits company that owns Southern Comfort. And she said, I'm Janis Joplin. I'm a famous singer. I drink your Southern Comfort on stage and you should sponsor me. <laughs> and, and the president of Brown and Foreman wrote her back and said, really, uh, what is it that you want? And she shared that letter with her friends. And she wrote back to him and said, I want a full length white ermine coat and a matching ermine hat. <laughs> and he sent it to her. And wow. she wore it everywhere. And she said, this is the coat that Southern Comfort bought me. So clearly, Jim Morrison was not okay with doing commercials. Right. And Janis Joplin was. Interesting. So going back to my earlier statement, yeah. you can't say what Jim would do. Do I think Jim would think differently today? There's a good chance he would. Right. But I, he's not here for me to ask him. So I can only go by what he did. So we have never done a commercial. With Janice, I know what she did. And so going by that, we use Joplin songs in commercials. We've licensed it to Mercedes-Benz. We've used it with Christian Dior. We did. It. There was a very well-shot commercial with Natalie Portman using Janice Joplin music for uh, a fragrance. Um, and that's fine because that's authentic to who Janice was and what she thought. 
Right. You know, would we do a commercial for the doors under the right circumstances? Maybe if it was something, you know, promoting access to entertainment or something that was free, certainly not a consumer product, you know, again, not a toothpaste or deodorant, or we may never do one. That's really up to, uh, you know, the Morrison and Manzarica states and John Densmore and Robbie Krieger. But when you say commercial, you would do a Dawes commercial to promote an upcoming release or something like that. Well, I don't see that as a commercial. Okay. I mean, actually using their songs in a commercial enterprise for a product other than something that they're making, right? Uh, you know, it depends. I mean, if there was uh, an automobile company that was promoting a hydrogen vehicle, I think we'd consider it. There was somebody that was doing something, uh, you know, that promoted clean energy or, again, access to music or entertainment. Mm -hmm. I remember there was some talk in the, in the Doors camp back when Microsoft uh, launched their Bing search engine. You know, a search engine is, a, is, is not a product. It's something that's free that people utilize and it promotes access to all kinds of things. Would we consider that? We'd consider that. I, I'm not saying whether we would or wouldn't, but, but you wouldn't uh, shut and the it door hasn't on. happened yet. Right, right. right. I'm not going to rule it out, but I'm going to say the odds are highly against. Funny you say Microsoft, too, because I remember when Windows 95 launched the Stones. You know, start me up. Start me up. And again, I got that same knee-jerk reaction where I felt, I don't know. It just seemed wrong. You know, you're doing this for the artists, but also for their fan base, too. I would imagine that's a consideration as well. Yes, but you have to. You can't talk about something as broad as, quote, a fan base, unquote. You really have to look at it demographically and generationally. So to you and I, we're old guys. You know, we we know what our status quo is and what we're comfortable with. Right. But what we're comfortable with versus what a 19-year-old is comfortable with are, are com two completely different worlds. Mm -hmm. You know, so to us, doing a commercial was anathema. It was selling out. It was, you know, right. giving it up to the man. Yeah. It was anti-rock and roll. It was, you know, all those things. Yeah. And if you look at the world today, and I'm not condoning either, I'm just being a messenger and I'm, I'm an observer, the tables have turned literally 180 degrees. And now there's a lot of big hits that are touting brands and up in the club with my Louis Vuitton. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just completely different. Right. And I think a lot of kids, a lot of these last two or three generations find their music through film, TV, and commercials. You know, yep. there's a huge clutter out there. How do you break through? It's, it's funny to me, um, we got a note from Spotify, well, it was probably six, seven months ago, for The Doors, congratulating us that since the advent of Spotify, we had now reached a billion streams. And I was kind of patting myself on the back, and I thought, wow, that's pretty awesome for them. Uh, and then I went and I looked at the demographics, and Drake had had a, hunt, had, had a billion streams in the last four weeks. And I couldn't name one of his songs, <laughs> but I know what you're Well, but again, I you and I are not the target right. audience. Right. Exactly. So, and if I don't turn 19-year-olds onto the idea of the doors, then the doors are going to vanish. I think there's an old proverb. I think it's a Native American proverb. I'm not sure. But it said, as long as a man's name is spoken, he is not dead. That's right. And so I don't want this great art to disappear into the ethers forever because, again, it carries very strong messages. And to me, art saves lives, and it certainly saved mine. Sure. But if you look at some American icons who – you know, that were huge, I mean, worldwide, and that are now have slipped to what to the bottom of the, the escalator I was referring to earlier. Think about guys like Bob Hope or Bing Crosby. Who cares about them today? Right. What 14-year-old knows the name Jackie Gleason? 
And pretty soon it's going to be Groucho Marx and it's going to be Humphrey Bogart. And it probably already is, you know, Veronica Lake and, and Hedy Lamar and Catherine Hepburn. These names are gone. It's right. over. Yeah. My goal is to have the name and the, and the, and the message of Janis Joplin and Grace Slick and Jim Morrison stay alive for centuries. You're doing God's work as far as I'm concerned, because, uh, you know, I never looked at it in those terms. Even a name like Johnny Carson, who, right. you know, meant so much to so many. I don't think kids care one way or the other. You know? Well, you also had, you know, the phrase mass media was invented for a reason. You know, uh, a top 10 primetime hit television show right now will gather three to six million viewers. And when the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show, he had 76 million viewers. Irving Azoff always has a great quote. He says, there's always 10 songs in the top 10, which is true. But, yeah, at, you know, at what amount of penetration? How many people are listening to those? You know, there was a signal moment. I remember it. I was in the middle of class. I, I teach at UCLA. And uh, that week, they, they had just announced the Billboard Top 10. And the number one album in the country was the Dreamgirls soundtrack. And it sold 66,000 copies. 66,000? It was number one. And number one? Yeah. And, and I remember a year before that, Sync was number one, but they sold 1.2 million in their opening week. Wow. So one sold 66,000, one sold 1.2 million, but they're both number one. So what does number one really mean? Nothing. I guess it means it's more than number two. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> What's the most absurd offer you've ever been suggested for one of your artists? Oh, my God. That's a very crowded field, Don. I mean, to me, they're all absurd if they don't he adhere to the legacy and and the art of, of these great artists. So, you know, I, I, you're asking for the hottest place in hell versus the coolest place in hell. I would tell you it's all hell. <laughs> it's all hell. Yeah. Yeah. I well, mean, I've seen incense burners and, quote, light my fire, F-Y-R-E, unquote, lava lamps and dolls and chewing gum and salad dressing and all kinds oh. of uh, plebeian horrible things speaking about horrible things tell me about the legal running you just had with the jenna girls <laughs> i mean i was so incensed about that you know they they had ostensibly gone out and purchased 100 or 200 vintage t-shirts at least that was their claim mm. uh you know maybe they manufactured them maybe they bought them vintage i don't know they claim they bought them vintage and I believe there was Tupac shirts, and I was managing the Tupac Shakur estate at that time, and there were Kurt Cobain shirts, and there were Jim Morrison shirts, and there might have even been Janis Joplin shirts. But they took these vintage, quote-unquote, shirts with this beautiful visage of Jim Morrison, and then they just superimposed their own photo in a dot matrix right over the top of Jim Morrison's photo. I didn't even know it was that bad. They actually, oh, yeah. They I mean, you could see Jim Morrison's face behind all the dot matrix of the Jenner face stamped on top of it talk about a place in hell and <laughs> they put them up for sale online at 100 or 200 dollars each and i saw that and i just i went crazy because uh, i mean the insult the arrogance the ignorance the uh, any other are not enough superlative adjectives yeah. to describe yeah oh boy i hope you sue them into the ice age well we we filed a lawsuit they took them down and apologized and uh that's really all you can do and we moved on yeah. but yeah. uh that was a particularly egregious example. Thank you for reminding me and ruining my morning. All oh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> it's okay. It's a perfect example of people who, in the generation that follows them, don't understand exactly what the crime was probably because they don't understand just how important the doors Look, were. Art is important. 
All art is important yeah. and art saves lives, you know, in, in any medium, whether it's Lin-Manuel Miranda in theater or sure. it's Banksy in fine art or it's, you know, a, a, a singer songwriter or a band. It's all art and art delivers a message and art is important and it changes how we think and feel and we see the world, hopefully, if it's good art. You know, some of the latter day pop culture icons, I mean, I know what Jimi Hendrix does. I, I don't know what Paris Hilton does. You know, I'm not so sure what the Jenner kids do. They're famous for being famous. Yeah, as I used to say, they're celebrities who are famous for being well-known. That's it. They well, I don't want to trivialize what they do either. I'm sure they've got a very important place in pop culture, and a lot of people follow them and listen to them and adhere to them. And I'm not going to uh, ridicule or minimize that. I'm just going to say it's very different from what I do. I mean, I can't think of anybody from the 70s, 80s and backwards that you could say were famous just for being famous. Oh, there was probably a few, but but but, Maybe but Zsa Zsa again, Don, what you cannot do, <laughs> yeah. don't make the mistake that a lot of people make. You know, one of the cautions that I throw out to my staff all the time is, and I'll repeat it here, which is you and I are not statistically significant samples. Right. And one of the biggest mistakes I see is executives who give notes on things or suggestions based on what they like or what hits their gut. But who are you and I? You know, how does a 14-year-old plumber's daughter in Dayton, Ohio think? Certainly much different than you or me. Right. And I already have you. You're already a fan. I don't need to convert you. I need to convert her. So if I do stuff that you respect and that's good for you, I may lose her and I've already got you. So what have I really gained? I've gained nothing. It's true. However, as long as I am authentic and credible and true to the original uh, zeitgeist of the artist, then I can turn on the 14-year-old without upsetting you because I'm still authentic and credible. To those ends, you're doing that with things like the Tony-nominated Broadway musical A Night with Janis Joplin, you know, re-exposing her to people that already know her, but also some of the people who might not have. Getting that, like you said, that 13-year-old plumber's daughter to get into it. And that's the medium that they're using right now. They're not necessarily buying albums or the, the stuff we were doing. It's, it's a whole new world. Right, which begs the question then and, the, and, the, and pondering the idea of commercials, because to them, that's a that's a uh, an authentic medium. It's just not to you or me. Uh, but thank you for the kudos. Oh, um, yeah. And that was the idea. You know, listen, it's also, I put things in a different order. I'm kind of backward to most people in the entertainment business in that I look at every opportunity, like a Broadway show or a documentary, I look at them as a legacy exercise first a marketing exercise second to turn people onto this artist and then a revenue exercise third. Yep. And I think the way most people tend to look at it is revenue first, second, and third. Exactly. And they look at ways to quote, exploit, unquote, this quote, content, unquote. And those two words are words that I refuse to let be uttered in meetings. I've been known to stop meetings when someone uses one or two of those words. I'll warn them once, but if they do it again, I'll stop the meeting. Mm -hmm. We don't use the word exploit. Some of my artists have been exploited their entire lives. Why would I want to co further continue to exploit them now? Sure. And I don't think Jim Morrison lived and died for content. It's not fucking content. It's art. 
Exactly and, right. You know, I don't think you call a girlfriend bitch, and I don't think you call music content because words have power and they mean things. That's, yeah. I'd rather think of us utilizing art than exploiting content. All right, sorry, I'm off my soapbox. What are the safeguards that, say, a new up-and-coming artist should employ so in the future? Should they become a household name and, and pass away? They can avoid their likeness being misused and exploited. Well, it's a, it's a very interesting question. I'll give you an interesting answer, I hope. One of the things that I've been talking about doing, uh, I've met with several many entertainment attorneys and many uh, entertainment uh, business managers and you know tax and estate planners and what i've said to them is if you take current artists even successful ones you know uh take an artist like garth brooks you know you got his estate all planned out you got his trusts funded you got his will spelled out you know exactly who's going to get what and where you're saving it from probate but none of you have thought about his legacy and i guarantee you i know the first 200 questions that his heirs are going to be asked for which they don't have answers. And when heirs don't have answers, they, they tend to get very fearful and that stops progress. Right. And so what I've said to them is, you know, put me with Garth Brooks for a week. Let Garth and I sit there for four or five days and I'm going to help him write an owner's manual for his legacy. So that when he passes on, that owner's manual can pass to his heirs. And when somebody comes to them and wants to do uh, an incense burner, they can look in their dad's owner's manual and right there on page 38. Oh, okay. Here under merchandise ephemera, here's what it says. Uh, or if somebody comes to them with a commercial, uh, you know, that they want to do a commercial and they're concerned about it. Oh, here it is on page 59, paragraph mm -hmm. two. And that's how you protect and extend the legacy by, by really carrying forward the artist's wishes. And if we have the chance to build these owner's manuals before they pass on, I think that would be one of the greatest things we could do. I love the reissues. Anything else coming out from the doors, Janice and Jefferson Airplane? Yes. He says enigmatically, <laughs> leaving me hanging. <laughs> yes, you can look forward to a 50th anniversary edition of Morrison Hotel that's coming. Great. And then next year we will have a 50th anniversary deluxe edition of LA Woman. We're doing something special for Pearl next year. And uh, yeah, you'll see all kinds of interesting things.
All right, the great Janis Joplin right there. And I want to thank once again mm. Jeff Jampo for spending some time with us and really teaching us a lot. Don't you agree? Can I chime in really quick with Janis Joplin? Please. Okay, so I am obsessed with Janis Joplin. Obsessed. And every year when I lived in L.A., I would go and visit the Highland Gardens, which is where she passed away. That's right, the whole time. Um, yes, and every October 4th, I found the uh, window of the room that she stayed in, and I would put a bottle of Southern Comfort on October 4th underneath that. Um, I know it, you know, we shouldn't celebrate the, the drinking, the drugs, um, but it, I hate saying that it was her, but it was, and what a talent. What a talent. Oh. The, the saddest part for me, which I could never wrap my brain around, was the mm-hmm. loneliness that she suffered yes. from. Oh, um, gosh. And- she was so viciously picked on. Yeah. So viciously picked on. Um, And that kills me. And I think that led to inevitably her decline. Because you drink your problems away. All of us who've had issues and continue to struggle. Sure. Yay, sobriety. Yeah. Sure. We fight these inner demons. But, my God, I can't imagine the... I mean, to be named, what was it? Ugliest... Man on campus. Stupid college kids. And, you know. Right? Like, how does that not not affect you? Um, And we benefited from that because of her music. But, man, she paid the price for that. Oh, I get goosebumps. I could cry. I'm actually tearing right now because that. It just makes me mad because she had every reason in the world to tell everybody Mm -hmm. to fuck off. Yeah. And just walk around with a head. I mean, look at the people. Who do walk around with their noses up? Who have mm-hmm. no talent today? Right. Who, who are right. known for nothing? Like we, like I said with Jeff, just known for being famous. Mm-hmm. That's it. Right. You can't. Do you know what I love? What's that? Have you ever seen her amazing interviews with Dick Cavett? Yes. Yes, I own I love those. Them. Those are great. And like, and- talk about two people that were so just different that got each other. And you you know, know what I mean? You gotta understand that back then, Dick Cabot was mm-hmm. an oddball because a lot of, you know, yes. your, your Johnny Carson's or whatever, or your, your average right. people would not have a Janis Joplin on. That was still seen as like right. deeply counterculture and counterculture. Mm-hmm. Counterculture, you know. yeah. And mm-hmm. there she is sitting next to Father Knows Best. What was it? What's his name? Um, um, Robert Young. She's sitting next to Robert Young. And, you know, she is so humble and. Yeah. And she's going to be a legend. Most of those people on that stage are going to be forgotten in five years. Mm-hmm. She'll never right? be forgotten. No. Ever. No way. And that's why I love Jeff. Like, he is going to make sure that doesn't happen. And and that is the kudos I have on that. And he's Especially doing it in the right her. way. He's doing it in Absolutely. the right way. You know, earlier we were talking and there was a commercial on in the background. And I'm watching it. And it showed Muhammad mm-hmm. Ali. It showed mm-hmm. the moon landing. It showed mm-hmm. Elvis Presley. And I'm like, oh, these are mm-hmm. beautiful, iconic images. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was a dial soap commercial. Mm, it's a boner killer. What the mm-hmm. hell does Elvis got to do with dial soap? Mm. And I want to know that. I would like the answer to that. The answer I, is I mean, that the Presley does- estate cashed in. That's the yeah. answer. And that's the kind but of... But I mean, Go ahead. yeah. No, no. It's just interesting. to. At first, I was like, okay, I kind of like this. But then I'm like, but what is the point? Like, are you trying to just use Elvis to buy, to sell soap? Like, do you know what I mean? If there was a meaningful reason to it, which I don't see it, and maybe I'm just not that deep enough to see it, then okay. But then I'm just like, wow. 
this is sad. When you know, you know, when Apple computers used there was a was it the Think Different campaign yes. a couple of years yeah, ago, yeah, yeah. and yeah. I thought that was brilliant. They had John Lennon, mm-hmm. they had Mahatma Gandhi. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. th- now that is a brilliant campaign because yes, they're selling a product, but that product mm-hmm. opens the world to people right. a computer yes. you know yeah. um, well you know what though but you know what though right now we do i mean this is kitschy and i'm trying to think we do need people to be very conscious of cleanliness so i mean is that what they're trying to say uh wear masks wash your hands i mean i kind of thought of that when i did see it are mm. they saying you're stretching tools? you're trying to read i know i am because i'm trying to see some light that elvis's family the presley family would do that do you know what i mean because it's just like no. 10 to 1 the campaign was already bought and paid for before the covid thing stopped you know struck. yeah I, oh yeah yeah for sure and, for sure for and sure. again there's just a right way and a wrong way to be mm-hmm. commercial um and mm-hmm. and especially again the artists who are no longer here to say oh for real what i would mm-hmm. do and what i wouldn't do colonel mm-hmm. tom parker would have put elvis's oh picture gosh. on toilet yeah. paper he oh, didn't care he, just, he yeah. didn't care yeah Whereas, i mean that man was so responsible for that man's demise um i think not that i know but i no just you're right reading. yeah not to go off on a tangent but you know the famous story yeah. about a star is born uh, mm-hmm. Barbara Streisand originally, mm-hmm. you know, Chris Christopherson did the role, but she wanted Elvis. And yeah. she went up to Graceland and talked to him personally. And he was <laughs> uh-huh. so excited. He was ready to go. Yeah. He, I think the colonel was was away on vacation, so he hadn't talked yeah. it over with him. But when he comes back, Elvis says, listen, Barbara Streisand came over to. Oh, yeah, I talked to her about that deal. Uh, I nixed that deal. Oh. He says, why? Well, because yeah. she wants top billing. And even oh Elvis gosh. said, well, it's her he movie. He would have been her, fine with that. It's her movie. She wrote the song. Right. She wrote the, uh, no, 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 no. My boy don't oh take top billing to nobody. No. And uh, besides, you're going on tour anyways. Mm. And that's where Elvis is a gentleman and a true showman. Because he he knows he's huge. He knew he was huge. And was like, I'm fine that she takes top billing. Like, that is awesome. But he wasn't Shame strong enough. There's a, it comes back to that. Right. Like we talked about Janice. There's an insecurity yes. there. Yes. That a Mick Jagger or a Paul yeah. McCartney doesn't have where they go, right. they go, no, yeah. I'm taking over the reins. I'll decide what my career is going to be. Thank you very much. Yeah. You just, yeah. you just get the checks in here. Why could well, you know Elvis what? do that? Well, you know what though? We're seeing it right now with Kanye West, who is so batshit crazy. Oh, yeah. But what's so sad with him is he is surrounded and what Elvis was surrounded and everybody with too many yes men. Mm-hmm. Kanye needs so much help. There are too many guys enabling him that are telling him that he's fine. He is not fine. This poor soul, I I think he's crazy and I'm sorry, but he's truly sick. He's truly mentally ill. And he is just enabled and yesed to death because I think that's sadly is what's going to happen. I don't see him sadly living a very long life. That's sad. Surrounded by people that are just, right? And And he doesn't see it. And his wife is doing the right thing maybe by bringing it out in the open. She's probably saving his life. She totally is. And it's that. But again, this is why the yes men. And, you know, it's kind of like Johnny Depp, too many ass men, and he lost all the money. Like, you have to truly be, surround yourself with trustworthy humans, because it is, it ends up killing you financially, emotionally. It's, it's just a sad, sad situation. You must you have know? saw that a lot in L.A., people where you don't know who oh. to trust. 
I oh mean, my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh, it's sad. You really don't. And like I said, when I, I still, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm connected with a bunch of bands and if somebody hears they roll into town, it's funny how the text messages slide in on, you know, on right. it, it's human nature, but you know, those people and you know, to like, I just can't be, I can't imagine waking up to it and going to sleep at night with it and never knowing who you can trust. For what it's worth, I may not be Tommy Lee, but you were fantastic Mm -hmm. with my band. We should say that you uh, actually booked us at a uh, yearly festival that you were involved with. Yes. Well, hello. Not because we we got a rapport from... Because, one, your band was superb. I mean, hello, I'm not going to book a crappy band. (laughs) But no, you guys, you brought it. Thank you. Thank you. But you, but you're a hustler, homie. I'm throwing out some Jay Z. You are good at what you do, and you just you've got that it that you're like, I want to come back. What are we gonna do? But you bring everything to the table, and you were very easy to bring back. And um, thank you. That's who you always remember to bring back is somebody that's easy to work with, and persistence does truly pay off. Because I can be flighty. I I couldn't stand club owners. Who would say, mm-hmm. call me tomorrow, call me tomorrow. Yeah. And then when you call yeah. them tomorrow, they go, you call me too much. Oh, well, gosh. You know, yeah, yeah, just, yeah. I respect you someone. You can't win. Right. You can't win. And I respect someone you who says, win. we can't use you this year or next year. Fine. Yes. I'm not going to keep calling because like a Because you don't want to be strung along. Exactly You don't want right. to be strung along. There are some yeah. people who the only thing that they can do is mm-hmm. get aggressive. It's, Ugh. I, I got to yeah. do a whole show about club owners in, in the Rhode Island, New England area. Because oh, Barry Arrow Breed. The great ones are great, yeah. and they stay in business. One of For a li- reason. For a reason. And that's one of the lines yeah. me and Kevin always used, my bass player. If there was a problem with a club owner, you know, you'll never play here again. Well, sure we will when oh, the next owner takes break. over because they can never hang on to their clubs. The ones yeah. who don't well, know see, how to Well, see, this is where I, I can't stand that sort of mentality of you'll never play here again. Um, that's a lot. Okay, if it's warranted and, you know, you're banging hookers and, you know, doing lines off. Okay. What's wrong All with right. that? I mean, sorry, wasn't that last Sunday? Yeah. I mean, my bad. My bad. <laughs> no, but yeah. if, you, if you're true, if you show up late, if you... You're, you played two songs and you're like, I'm out of here. Right. Then that's warranted. I can't stand these power-hungry club owners that do that. Mm-hmm. And that's what sucks the, about the music industry is bankers or dudes that have a Napoleon Syndrome complex that feel like, you know what? I'm just going to be a jerk today and tell you, you'll never play here again. You know what I used to hear in entertainment all the time and I hate it What's was... That? Oh, do you know, I've got thousands of people that will work your job in a minute. I can't stand that mentality. Don't give me fear. Support me. Do not throw my job in my face. And what, and I, because I know that I have an amazing job. Right. Don't throw, what kind of environment is that? Toxic. So That's what it, it is. absolutely is. And I hate that. That is the part of the business. I wasn't very good with the business side of music my forte was with the bands with the artist relations i mean of course i could hold my own with the executives i just had a problem with that kind not all i mean jeff jample is a great example not all are like that um but so many were and i just didn't like that mentality it bothered me to the nth degree i mean there was a band that went on tour that was on one of the labels I worked with. And I mean, they were only given $30 per day per diem to eat. Come on. 
Wow. You know, when it, it, yeah. So it's just, I'm more, I guess, artist centric. And again, not all executives are like that, but it's a tangent. I went on a tangent. No. Um, reeling myself back in. But, um, it's the power. Don't don't throw it in somebody's face, you know? Well, I'll tell you, it's been a pleasure having two class acts in the music business on today. And I want to thank my co-host, Susie Gears, and Jeff Jampol for being such great guests. And I hope you come back and do the show again sometime. Who, me? Yeah, you. I'm so down. All right. And we'll I'm see so you down. all again next time on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. But I like it. <laughs> Have to. Oh, Susie Q. Oh, Susie Q.